0: Hey, hi! Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, senior film writer for Now Magazine, and this is the other thing I do. My guest this week is Naomi Squarna, a journalist and actor who makes her feature debut in Dim the Fluorescence, which is having its second-ever public screening tonight. That's Tuesday, January 24th, at the Slamdance Film Festival at 6 p.m. And yes, that movie's director, Daniel Worth, was my guest on our last episode. This should give you an idea of how much I like Dim the Fluorescence. Naomi picked Margaret, the film Kenneth Lonergan made after his acclaimed first feature, You Can Count on Me, or... Tried to make, anyway. Shot in 2005, but unreleased until 2011, and only then in a version that doesn't fully reflect the filmmaker's intentions, Lonergan's movie stars Anna Paquin as Lisa Cohen, a high school student in Manhattan whose involvement in a horrific accident sends her spinning off her axis. But there's much, much more to the story than one person's trauma, as there always is in Lonergan's work. And we get into all of it, including You Can Count on Me and Manchester by the Sea, which is why this episode runs an hour and a half, which is still half the length of the extended cut of Margaret. Which is not the director's cut. We'll we'll get to that. This is someone else's movie.
1: I wasn't really sure what why to pick a movie exactly, but I guess I uh, I have long been a fan of Kenneth Lonergan and particularly this movie. And now that it feels like people are like, oh, who's this Kenneth Lonergan guy with Manchester by the yeah, Sea? Yeah, yeah. Seemed somewhat relevant.
0: When did you first see it, and which version did you see?
1: Oh, oh oh okay well I <laughs> oddly um I watched it on Netflix of all okay. places it was it was like I had really wanted to see it and I've been like tracking its progress for some time and um I think I probably saw it like just very shortly after it was released um but yes on Netflix and it was <clears throat> not his cut
0: right I'm guessing the two and a half hour version.
1: Yeah, yeah. And then maybe like last summer I, I'd seen it once and I thought it was astonishing. I loved it. I was amazed by it. Um and uh then I um I was gonna write something about Manchester by the Sea, so I thought this is a good excuse to like watch You Can Count on Me and Margaret again and and this time I watched his his version and I was so happy I did that because there are so many, besides just like the lengthening of certain scenes and stuff. There are a few really important moments that are just not present in the shorter version. Yeah,
0: yeah. Um, I was really struck by I, two things are, are rad, feel radically different. One is that the aesthetic feels so much messier, and yes. it, I think part of that is because the longer cut is unfinished. I mean, it is. It feels like a work print. I'm sure it's not. I'm sure every choice is deliberate. But the, the sound mix, the intrusion of noise, just the, just the generally grubbier feeling of Manhattan. Uh, and part of that, of course, is because the film can't be released on Blu-ray, apparently, in the longer cut, because it isn't, it isn't conformed. It isn't finished. What we're seeing is a standard definition edit hmm. um, on the DVD. So it looks a little shabbier. And the other thing is just how much more breathing there is, just how much more every scene, almost every scene is different. Um, or, or, and if it's, if it's simply a question of the sound mix being radically different or the music being different or the scenes not finishing or jumping over things in the, in the, um, in the theatrical cut that they don't do here because it just unfolds at a different pace and has more room for everything. And, a couple of massive revelations.
1: Yes, um, which you kind of just have to take on face value when, ooh. without when they're when they've been sort of deleted in the shorter version.
0: Yeah, the um, hopefully people listening to this will have seen at least one cut, but uh, it's, it's
1: uh, yes, it's true. I I actually really yeah. have no idea how how seen it yeah. is as a film. It is sort of.
0: Potentially obscure enough that people don't know that this is the one that happened between You Can Count On Me and Manchester by the Sea, which is weird because there is such a continuity between those three features. Oh,
1: absolutely. Yeah.
0: And feel free to talk about whatever, you know, you don't have to keep it t- to Margaret. There's there's plenty of room to move.
1: I, isn't it funny? I always feel vaguely embarrassed to call it Margaret.
0: <laughs> I, I'm physically doing it. I'm, men- I'm physically. I'm like, you know that that's myself. what it's
1: called, but like yeah. <laughs> but people don't know why. So I, I, I almost, yeah, I, I sometimes like, um, I go back and forth. I call it Margaret around people who've seen it and Margaret <laughs> Margaret, around those who I suspect haven't.
0: Yeah. And even even that is weirdly self-defeating. Yeah, sure. As a decision, <laughs> part, it's like, well, the character's name is Lisa. What? You just Everything about it fights easy understanding, even though it is really simple to describe to people. I mean, it's about a young woman, a girl, who is completely unprepared for life. Like, that's how I was describing it. And that's part of it, but there's so much else going on. There's you know, there's her, her entire struggle with culpability, or even if her brain will allow her to understand what culpability is, there's all of the basic stuff that happens in the course of that. There's r- potential for romance, or at least understanding and, and attraction and compassion. She's not ready for anything that happens, but she's supremely confident that she is. And so you spend either two and a half hours or three hours and eight minutes watching this, this person just be completely it's like watching it's like watching a uh I don't even know what the appropriate term is. It's like watching a, a stuffed animal get thrown around in a whirlwind. She has absolutely no armor. She's just bouncing back and forth, and mm-hmm. all she has is the illusion that she knows what she's doing.
1: But she's she's so um she's so adventurous as a character she's so consenting to Mm -hmm. things that that you almost feel like like and she is a very uh as a teenager which is what she is she's like she has like a hunger for a certain kind of like um self-destruction you know because she's still building a, a myth about herself which is something that i find really fascinating about the film like my favorite scene, which again, probably maybe I'm jumping ahead here, but I'm absolutely obsessed with the scene between um anna Paquin, who who plays Lisa and um and Emily who uh, is played by Jeannie Berlin yeah. um the scene where uh, Lisa calls her strident. Do you know the scene I'm yeah. talking about? Yeah and she and it's this amazing argument between an incredibly mature older woman and a really intelligent but really immature younger woman who both are very powerful and like each other a lot mm. but um but she you know uh, Emily says this thing to her about you know you're free to falsify your own life but don't falsify mine and my friends and it feels like it I don't actually know why I brought this up yeah. exactly but uh, except for, you know, just talking about Lisa as this kind of stuffed animal, sort of, she's maybe a stuffed, I, yeah, I would stuffed push back, or like yeah. there's a, a stuffed animal doesn't like, uh, she's a catalyst for all these things, you mm-hmm. know, she doesn't cause the accident, but she distracts the driver who, who, you know, you could say caused the accident right. or, or.
0: Yeah, she's not the foot on the accelerator.
1: Exactly. But she is understanding the the level of her, um, the power that she has, you know, at, like beyond just like f- men, which is something that happens in the film in, mm. a, in a few different ways, but also just, you know, having to do with life and death. And this, as a lot of people like to remark, that this film is very post 9-11.
0: Very much so. I mean, yeah. and not just because you're, Constantly, well, not just because, you're constantly reminded of how recent it was because everybody looks like a baby. Uh, I mean, <laughs> not just Paquin, but Matt Damon, who looks fetal in a couple of shots. And just yes, he's
1: flubby, really young. Yeah. Even the, so, just the city looks different the, yeah. and the clothes that people are wearing very... Very early, mid-2000s. Yeah.
0: It's, I mean, looking back now, that film was shot 11 years ago, which is inconceivable to me. And I mean, and still he feels started so
1: writing it so, like... I don't know if, if he started, like... Re- I, I'm forgetting now. Um, I feel like there was a... That re- Rebecca Mead New Yorker profile of again oh, that was recent recently published. I think he talked about, you know, starting to work on it very soon after September 11th. Yeah. And... Um, you know, like walking around the city and and um, listening to people's conversations and transcribing them and and like like that scene in the in the his cut of in the diner where there's yeah. just like that very slow zoom and you can't hear what Lisa and and um,
0: is it David?
1: Dar- John- I think his name is like. Derek? Derek, Darren, and
0: John Gallagher,
1: John Gallagher Jr. Yeah, who
0: barely figures in the theatrical cut and has so much more of a life in this. One.
1: I know, and he—I mean—he's such a fantastic actor, and it, um... and in
0: 2005, nobody even knew who he was. Which, yeah, which I know. is again like just Lonergan's amazing and stuff. Oh for well, well,
1: okay. Here's a super embarrassing thing, which Please? is the reason why. <laughs> the reason why I was like, oh, I can't wait to see this movie, Margaret. I had seen you can count on me a long time ago and I liked it, but I don't think I really had an awareness of like the, and I'd read, um, this is our youth. Cause I'm a, I'm a, you know, theater nerd. <laughs> um, I knew it was an important play. And, um, but at like some point in the early two thousands, I was super into this musical called spring awakening, yeah. <laughs> which John Gallagher jr. became known for because he originated one of the roles and he won a Tony award and that was in probably about 2005, and I I remember like you know Googling him every so often, being like, "What's he up to?" <laughs> he was in a, he was in a movie called uh, Pieces of April, mm-hmm. which is also yeah. a, a good independent film. I
0: think that was the first time I was aware of him. I didn't really appreciate him, I think, until Short Term 12, but that was oh years
1: yeah there. yeah. And then he was on the Newsroom. It's funny he keeps kind of getting breaks, and then the the breaks sort of dissolve. Yeah. Not because of him.
0: Um. But yeah, the the story of of the effort to release this film is as detailed and complex and convoluted as the film itself, which is mm-hmm. just fascinating. And more often than not, when you hear about an alternate cut of a movie or a lost film, it's something that gets lost because one person cared really passionately and then somebody else didn't, and so the finances never got... Put together or it's something like Don's Plum where Leonardo DiCaprio and to- Tobey Maguire make a movie for the fun of it and then it gets disappeared through history because they don't want to have it out there in the world and it's pretty terrible uh, <laughs> but this is I, I, I was rereading all of it just the other day to make sure I was caught up on it before we could talk about it and it is insane there is another cut of the film out there somewhere that no one well, there are two in
1: fact the like a, the even longer version the shorter
0: one's this that's the thing i thought there was a longer version he
1: does have he has a version that's even longer How and he's long like is, it? <laughs> is he talking about it now well I, again in that, it was in that rebecca Mead piece mm. i mean i think he just i mean gosh he just sounds like someone who probably I, I've said this to Daniel, um, who's also Daniel and Miles, who wrote in the Fluorescence. They're both big Lonergan fans, and the, and Margaret is something that they actually like, sort of referenced in some discreet ways in the film. Not that that matters, but um, but we were talking about we were talking about how I mean, speaking for myself and him too. I don't know about you. Okay. I almost feel like I could keep watching Margaret forever. <laughs> like you yeah. could just keep going. Yeah, and like I'm in. integrating new characters but just that that lens you know his the his uh his wisdom the wisdom that he has and his the generosity and the darkness of yeah. <laughs> of i mean his his darkness is not punishing though i find he's not sadistic even though he does kind of there is a lot of he does he does uh, he does dwell in psychic pain yeah. a lot <laughs> i think he has to
0: though i mean that's that's clearly what attracts him right like heaping heaping tragedy on people to see how they behave and see what happens
1: exactly to see how they behave not necessarily to like make them um become stronger or or but almost just to like make them more interesting Mm -hmm. and they are like lisa is such an interesting character within the sort of the chaos that ensues after after that 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 bus accident yeah
0: it's been fascinating running back and reading other people's responses, too, because there, there's a stream of, uh, I mean, part of it is that the longer cut was saved by the Team Margaret hashtag that resulted in, in 2011 in some critical support and some ultimate grudging support from Fox Searchlight to send mm. out DVDs. I mean, this is, this is the thing that I cannot believe. The guy who made You Can Count On Me makes a movie for, for Fox Searchlight, and after all the legal wrangling is resolved, Fox Searchlight chooses to dump it they they dumped it i mean they released it on two screens in, in in america in october or late september early october because the producer gary gilbert torpedoed a possible screening at tiff that year oh yeah this is in that big new york uh, times magazine piece from 2011 or 12
1: yeah
0: uh, that details the the just the i the didn't sheer know that it got it got
1: bumped from tiff yeah they
0: were that... never got submitted Uh, because he refused to sign off. That was the the Scorsese cut that was going to be submitted. Mm. (laughs) So, uh, for those of you listening who don't know about all this stuff, we'll try to keep it as quick as possible. Um, Lonergan was contractually obligated to deliver a cut that was two and a half hours long to Fox Searchlight. Same kind of rule that kept the abyss from being too long in 1989. Contractual obligation is that you get final cut if you deliver it to a certain running time. And without that, you lose final cut and it can be taken away from you. So... The nature of the production of Margaret meant that the producer, Gary Gilbert, who put up most of the money, uh, or guaranteed most of the money for the shoot, meant that he had also the ability to sign off on something, or that he also possessed the ability to sign off on the final cut, which meant that he didn't like the two-and-a-half-hour version and proceeded to simply obstruct further additions, further iterations of the film. He gave it to the editor of... Brokeback Mountain, and a two hour cut was created that no one has seen. Um, Lonergan hates it and refuses to acknowledge it. Uh, It it exists, but no one has seen it. Searchlight said no, because they were bound to Lonergan because he managed to bring in a cut that was two and a half hours long. Then, around 2009, I think, Martin Scorsese stepped in to cut it himself. Uh, and try to figure out a cut that would work. The three-hour, eight-minute version that's on the DVD, I believe, is the assembly cut, or the final pre-cut cut cut that Lonergan came up with. The music, the opera music is temp tracks uh, that they kept in in this cut, which makes me think that that's where he stopped. That was the version he got it down to before he started cutting what would be the two-and-a-half-hour version. Scorsese's cut comes back is two hours and 40 minutes long. So... It's almost certainly distilled from the from the extended cut from the three-hour, the three eight-minute version. And whatever else is different about that is enough that they feel confident about submitting it to TIFF. Searchlight's ready to do it. Gary Gilbert says no. So it doesn't go to TIFF. Fox Searchlight finally just says, eh, they settled with him or he settled with that. No, they settled with him in 2011. The film is released dumped onto uh, those two screens, gets a meager release in Canada. I know it played Toronto. I think it also played Vancouver. One screen, one week, gone. Then Team Margaret happens. There's a rallying of support in the U.S. for an Oscar campaign, an awards campaign, any kind of visibility, a larger release. I think there was a grudging expansion into a few more cities in the U.S. Didn't happen up here, or it happened here When it happened in the U.S., the timeline's all screwed up on this, because I didn't review it, and so I missed it theatrically. And then, Fox Searchlight sends out DVDs to certain awards bodies, not critics, just the Academy and I think maybe the Hollywood Foreign Press. No no nominations. They're mum about a release date for DVD. Usually a film opens in the fall, it's out on disc by, you know, February, March. Margaret finally surfaced in July only available from Amazon in a Blu-ray double edition with Blu-ray of the theatrical cut and the DVD of the extended cut. Neither of which Lonergan will call the director's cut because he cut both of them and he refuses to pick. So, huh, that's, the, that's the info dump. But it seems pretty clear to me that the longer cut is the cut that he values.
1: Yes, yeah, I, I think he's he's said as much, um, and yeah, I think I think I read that he has a version. I think he just feels probably so protective and yeah. so. At, I mean, he he admits that his his stubbornness and his inability to, to sort of finish the film like played a, played a significant role in you know all the the drama that happened between him and the studio and mm-hmm. and I mean he. he uh, he couldn't, I, I've been there. He, it's hard to let go of something when you don't feel it's, when you don't feel it's finished, when you don't feel satisfied or supported necessarily in, in his case. Um, but yeah, I, I'm pretty sure he alluded to there being like a, an even longer version. Did
0: he talk about length? Like any kind of time? I, sequence?
1: I, he might've, I don't remember. Okay. It was, it was like, it felt just, um, I'll have to I'll have to look it up and but I I got the sense that it could have been like an additional 30 40 minutes oh, or something. Wow. I think he just I think they shot so many scenes. I think I think they just I, they just shot so much. Yeah. It's uh, such a huge film.
0: In that <laughs> earlier New York times magazine piece josh hamilton says that the script they did a reading of it before they shot it months before and it took oh, that's all right, day hamilton yeah, he's, yeah. A, he's in
1: yeah yeah and he's in manchester by the sea as well I, yeah i love his ensemble is is his his uh is sort of like mike lee like this this movable ensemble that sort yeah. of rotates through different kinds of roles
0: yeah And always <laughs> somehow with matthew broderick is the voice of kind of flawed reason
1: I know, which I find really interesting. I think that's really interesting too. I have a theory about that. Oh please! <laughs> no, I don't. I don't no, know. Come on, this it's, is what this is for. It's but it's more of a conspiracy theory. <laughs>
0: <laughs> now you have to tell me.
1: He is. He is. He is a.
0: It's like the authorial...
1: He's he's always flawed. He's always, often kind of humiliated. I think, mm. maybe. Mm. Mm-hmm. No, I know if you go. But, I mean, I don't know if you know this, but he and Lonergan are best, like childhood best friends. Yeah. I have this theory, which is like, you know, um, it's dark. But Matthew Broderick, young man on vacation in Ireland, uh, is re- in, due to an automobile accident, um, takes the life of two people, uh, and is injured himself, and... Um, they do it they do press charges against him but eventually it's just lessened to careless driving and a fine of $175 God. so and he apologizes to the family
0: which is horrible anyway but yeah just
1: and yet so then you think about not 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 that there's like a direct line between that event and then the circumstances within Margaret but like as you might remember, there's like a a, a a great conversation between Lisa and the police officer played by Stephen Adley Gurgis, another fantastic playwright who's also often plays, plays like voices of reason and, and cops in yeah. movies quite a bit. <laughs> he has the look. Like yeah, he, just, he looks like it. He's, he's amazing. Um. Uh, anyway, Um. She, he's, she's like she's tr- she's pushing for you know why why won't this bus driver get fired why can't he go to jail and you know the cop explains to her like he didn't commit a crime maybe reckless driving you know but it was an accident right. even if he did go through this red light to to be charged with murder to be charged with a crime he had to intend to kill her and you see in her head she's this doesn't make sense because her notions of justice are 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 um have so little to do with the law.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so then you think about, like, precise, like, he was charged with careless driving, you know, this this bus driver in Margaret, played by Mark Ruffalo, um, which is such a fantastic, like, that character's so amazing because he's not evil, he's not a villain, and yet somehow you. Yeah, like, I even I, when I, was wa- I watched it, just I rewatched it last week, and I was like, oh, I do want him to be punished. Oh, I, do, yeah. I do want, even though, like, even though, again, it was this sort of um, convergence of human error that led to someone's brutal death. Yeah.
0: And Lisa is just as culpable in that way, in that even if she didn't distract him fatally, she did lie about the color of the light to the police, which is yes. something she does impulsively and then tries to correct. Uh, but then, the f- I, like the movie is actively telling us, he deserves some form of punishment. I think, but there's that glimpse of the headline that says driver had had two other accidents.
1: Yes, there the there is, These is little this
0: revelations where the movie is telling you, I think, or Lana is saying that say, he
1: has this pattern, perhaps of 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 care of reckless driving. Yeah. You know, and should that person be driving a bus in Manhattan? Yeah. Like it's. Um, it's a it's a very it's very interesting to to me to create such an ambiguous villain within a film mm-hmm. if you do want to call him that because he's not nothing about him is intentionally bad he's just like he's feckless you know yeah. he's he's um he's 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 kind of incompetent like <laughs> and that is i think in our world that's very often what what causes like a great deal of damage within our society is not people being not people consciously intending to harm others. Um, I, I, I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I feel like that when I, when I think about myself at, at like Lisa's age, thinking very much in terms of like good and evil as being very, very black and white like that, that guy's a, a bad guy. That like in just in people I right, knew. Just making you know? judgments. Yeah, understanding humanity as not really being uh, being sort of on a on a continuum. Right. But then, you know, and in some ways learning harshly that even I have done I have caused harm or done bad things, not because I mean to, but out of out of out of some kind of Unconscious cowardice or conscious cowardice. Like, and then do you perceive, I mean, you don't perceive yourself as being evil because you've done something wrong. But, and yet I think sometimes there's this, uh, the way we organize, you know, the the news, the news, the media does this as well. People are slotted into um, this kind of person or that kind of person.
0: Yeah, Uh, John Ronson's book, about public shaming has some remarkable insights into this, yeah, uh, just the way that that part of it is the media, and then part of it is the human mind's need to compartmentalize everything except itself. Um, you can judge someone else so quickly but then refuse to be judged yourself because you know what your story is, your complexities and when we hear about something or see something that can be distilled into a couple of sentences you just well obviously you form your you've already formed your opinion by the time you've read the second sentence because you can judge everything as i would do this or i wouldn't do that and it's just so binary and yeah margaret gives you none of that it's just throwing curves at you constantly about everything
1: everything everything like there is absolutely yeah there none of those characters are like clear um, sort of moral centers, mm. you know, if you want to think that anyone could be that. But very often, a character is endowed with a, a great sort of m- um, moral anchoring force in art, in film, in narrative art, I sure. guess. Sometimes, often. <laughs> I'm going to make a sweeping statement. Wow, it's a, it's a pretty good one. <laughs> um, a case could be made. But, I mean, there's this thing in Mar- Margaret where he kind of abandons you within that. Like... I, I this time when I watched it, so this is the third time I watched it, I, I became really, really fascinated by the character of Lisa's mother, mm. um, who's who's played by Jay Smith Cameron, who is a wonderful actor and also Wandergan's, um partner, long-term mm-hmm. partner.
0: And a number of interesting choices just in having her play the role because, of course, he casts himself as Lisa's absent father. He's yes. in Los Angeles.
1: Yeah. <laughs>
0: um, he just... I love the fact that he makes these weird, I mean, like an absent god appearances in his own work in Manchester too, when he shows up and just has, he has, two that is a
1: ridiculous cameo. And will just
0: sit there going, of course you would,
1: of course you would. And he's, he, his role in um, You Can Count On Me is so amazing. Like that, that very, I mean, that, that priest character is, is perhaps the, he's sort of like a, a philosopher, yeah. <laughs> like more than, um, Oh, but I realized I, I strayed from my conspiracy theory. Oh, we'll get back to it. Okay. And and,
0: also, and I don't want to lose the thread on J. Smith Cameron either, who is
1: phenomenal yes, in yeah. this film,
0: and and a role that again refuses to give us what we need from it, which is that the mother is supposed to know what to do. Like it really—that's clearly what she Lisa makes, wants. She too. makes
1: so many mistakes, and she suffers. Neat. She's she's. I think what this time, what I was so fixated on was the fact that the mother's like fatal mistake is in advising Lisa to lie yeah and then And then Lisa punishes her for the rest of the film until that final moment. Yeah. And
0: it's the right choice, isn't it? I mean, it doesn't feel like a mistake when she does Oh, that's a... It (laughs) feels like she's trying to support her daughter and get her out of something quickly. Doesn't it feel...
1: But doesn't it feel easy? Doesn't it feel like the easiest choice? It does. But I can see how a mother would want...
0: You know, like, the, the, the impulse for her is to make it go away. Yes. Which is what Lisa wants. She doesn't... Like, at the time, at the moment... She just wants this to not have happened.
1: And yet, shouldn't also a par- a parent say tell the truth? Shouldn't a parent say? Shouldn't like a parent advise you to um, be as honest as possible, especially when it relates to someone's life and death? I agree. Sure. I I mean that in no. I mean, but, but
0: when it's tested,
1: exactly. That's, what she does. that's then do you then do you become pragmatic? Do you say, well, this has traumatized my daughter. The woman's dead. She had no attachments, and yet this man is still alive. Yeah. You know, but then they also kind of frame her as I, I love, I absolutely love just the, the the sort of the satire of of, of um a okay. grown woman who's an actor, who's a theater actor. Like yeah. she's she seems she seems so young, so immature in so many ways, and she requires so much attention from her daughter and at, cer- at a certain point and yet she's also such a lovely character too yeah.
0: <laughs> she has the relationship going on with Jean Renaud's character which, oh yes which goes in directions that are perhaps the most mature and intelligent like just he's I guess he's another truth teller in that he's someone who is presented as knowing himself and being secure in literally everything he does to the point where he says at one point you know it doesn't matter if we don't if we don't appear to fit well together We, I like you and you like me and that's an articulation of something that, I mean, probably happens more often in real life than in movies, mm-hmm. where people speak the truth, uh, romantic, romantic truths to people, and they're that flat, almost. Because it's, it's the opposite of romantic, except that it is uh, a declaration of, of intent. Uh-huh. But no one knows what to do with it
1: except, in cinema. yeah, I mean, hmm, that's interesting. Thank you. yeah Uh, i know and and i guess like that that makes me think of some of uh, another another part of the film that uh one sort of an underpinning to like basically every micro plot within the film is like how mysterious they are like you said you know, that he has this statement, you know, I like you, you like me. But as soon as you said that, I was like, does she like him? Like, you never really... Like, she she kind of agrees, and, and he's... True. She just sort of sticks around.
0: She, it's not even a question.
1: She, I mean, you understand, like, or one understands that she's a lonely woman. She has a satisfying work life, but she's also being... Um, her daughter is kind of shutting her out a little bit. Yeah. Um she's vulnerable because at something that they refer to a whole bunch is like oh, her my play's opening you know <laughs> which is which at at a certain point is is played for sort of triviality I don't know if you remember the the when they have when Emily and oh I can't wait to talk about Emily <laughs> cuz that character is to me unprecedented in like any story like she's to me like the one of the smartest invented characters i've ever encountered outside of literature okay anyway we'll get there (laughs) think of it as a nesting
0: doll we just keep opening it up and finding new stuff stuff.
1: yes yes i i i i mean that was one of the reasons i wanted to talk about this film was like i just i could talk i could talk about it endlessly (laughs) it just does feel it does feel like there's so much to unpack in every beat of it um uh Okay, I've said, like, four different things and completed none of them. Oh, okay, let's... But ta- we were talking about J. Smith Cameron yes. as the mother and Jean Renault. That's, I think, where we were. And, um... I mean, there's... It's... She has this thing at the end where... At his um, funeral... Yeah, it's okay, people yeah. Don't know. <laughs> yeah, um...
0: Another unresolved plot point, basically, is that he suddenly isn't there anymore. Yes, like, that's just where the story. And gets he us.
1: leaves her with this incredible mystery when her his son comes to him and says, "You know, he as as soon as he met you, he knew that he wanted to marry you because he had ne- he hadn't connected with anyone since, um, like his wife yeah. who had passed away, and." it's almost comic because all of their exchanges that they've had have been felt so superficial. Mm. Like him, her, uh, I love that, that, you know, after they go to the opera and she says, you know, isn't it, isn't it pretentious the way they say brava and bravi. and, And he's like, no, no, that's just, that's, that's the female and then that's the plural and she's like but isn't it pretentious and he's like no it's just the correct it's yeah. just he's just so literal like he doesn't he can't speak to her the way she wants to be spoken to and so repeatedly they show her just kind of sort of petering her whatever she was whatever argument she was trying to make kind of peters out yeah and you don't look at it and think oh my gosh they have incredible chemistry or they're so connected and then and then she has that told to her by a stranger she's bewildered by it yeah. you know and then um and then she asks lisa you know she says like what did you what did you make of that and lisa like is so cynical is like people people can't relate to each other like people don't know each other
0: right and then which is kind of right but also
1: but it's also again very much own. in the opposite direction mm-hmm. it's so it's we were talking about sort of um black and white before binaries yeah. it's like People are either super connected or not connected at all. When in fact, throughout the film, what we actually see are like people experiencing short term connections of varying sort of intensity yeah. and and pain or pleasure, you know, but they're still connections. Yeah. And but that, yeah. That
0: sense of, of life is a latticework of connections and constant interacting and intersection comes out a lot more in the longer cut simply because the sound design involves us in the conversations of everyone. Literally, everyone in the space is talking, and you can hear bits and pieces of it. the The diner scene is almost inaudible in a couple of scenes because this other conversation crashes into it,
1: Mm -hmm. and there's
0: this constant movement through Manhattan. Where the god's eye view of a number of shots, where you just have the sense that you're watching insects moving around, and yes, each of them is going cars somewhere. Cars
1: moving, yeah. yeah, like headlights in the darkness, or, or that beautiful opening sequence of like, the enormous like tide of bodies, in walking in slow motion, and, yeah. and again like you know accompanied by some profound classical song. As as he like, have you seen Manchester? I have, yeah, Okay. Yeah. And yeah. there's
0: definitely a continuity, <laughs> not only in the music, but the it struck me watching Manchester that everybody talks about how it's a film about grief. I think it's a film about guilt. I mean, it's about both, but it's about how how horrible it is to know you deserve to be punished he, and, and he not be punished. Punishment. Yeah, and, and tries over and over again, uh, and the and the idea that it's not about sadness for him anymore that it's turned into this weird martyrdom, this self-martyrdom... Yes, yes. ...that he must destroy. I mean, just the... the. Um, I'm, I'm hesitant to spoil Manchester by the Sea for people sure, who haven't sure, seen it Sure, yeah. But, I mean, Jesus Christ. The the need in Affleck's performance and, and, in, the, and in the character, because it's all on the page, just the need to pay for something that he uh-huh. has... <laughs> and the, the same thing happens in Manchester. It yeah. happens in Margaret, where someone is told it's not... It's not a crime. It's just awful.
1: I think they say to him that that happened to like ten other people yeah, the no, same it's, night. Yeah, no. The line you, is, you yeah. made
0: the same mistake yeah. a million people made, yeah. which is just even like even more of a dismissal. And they're they're all sympathetic and they understand that they want it. They want it to to be okay for him, and it'll never be okay. But they're everyone is trying to put the best possible face on it. Years you do, later. you
1: do also get the sense that like that some people still he is still kind of a pariah though you know when they when he goes to the rink and there I like, I'm thinking
0: about that exact yeah. scene and I don't know if he's a pariah or if he is like do do people understand how culpable he feels he is or do they just know the story about this guy that lost this part of his life which again we can't really talk about but, I, I, but think there's also that scene that watching it
1: over, and over again. I, I, agree, yeah. I agree I agree I sort of imposed some meaning that might may mm-hmm. or may not be there but then he also goes onto the ship to ask for work and the woman is like that's I never right. want to see him again yeah. and you don't know why could be for any number of reasons and that's even reason, before
0: the, the revelation right you don't we yeah
1: see that I don't think you know, know why, why but, you, but you also that's right it part could part also part. just be but it also you know you see him like, yes, absolutely, guilt, like, and self-punishment, he's sort of like, you know, I, I thought about that Kafka story, The Hunger Artist, you know, he no one, in his case, he just, um, like, the chaos of the events that kind of, like, came together to create this tragedy and, and leave him alone mm-hmm. also, you know, he's, like, brutally alone now. Um, he just has to not only does he isolate himself but as you said he also like seeks out um, like punishment yeah. typically excoriation yeah. in, in yes uh, in, yes in, in and public places and de- and also just like denies himself like i was thinking it's something that i found really compelling about that film is that he you don't really see this very often when there's like a sort of a tragic male figure usually if he's like drinking, if he's like, um, usually you see him like seeking comfort in, in the company of women, yeah. to to put it euphemistically. It's
0: a romanticization
1: of suffering. Yes, yes, yes. And it's like they, and they, they, and there's like, you know, instead, what I thought was so interesting and so, um, um, so. So contesting ideas of masculine conventional masculinity, you see him rejecting any kind of comfort from women yeah. again and again, yeah. you know, And it feels it feels too like too much of a pattern to think of as anything other than like very conscious on his part like it sometimes it's played for comedy like so there's the woman who like spills the drink on him right. you know and but then also when um and the,
0: the woman in the apartment in Boston who yes who
1: yes likes him, but who
0: can't, <laughs> can't act on it exactly but
1: he hears her talking about it or or then like her um his uh his nephew's girlfriend's mother right. who invites him in and he sits there for like what feels like thirty seconds before he finally says no, you yeah. know.
0: And it's just <laughs> it's it's this weird comic engine that drives the movie that people are attracted to. The women are attracted to him, and he won't do anything with it because, again, it's about self punishment mm-hmm. uh, and, and reject and self rejection. But it just it forms this amazing weird. And I keep coming back to the screenplay because the the TFCA awards were just last week as we're recording this and and Affleck was up for Best Actor and we we gave it to Adam Driver. okay. uh, And who is wonderful. And the argument I made against Affleck winning was simply that what Driver does is create the aesthetic of the movie along with the movie. And what Affleck does is an excellent performance of a script that is itself excellent. And, you know, I think... Kind of anybody who looks at the floor and stands right is going to make that scene work.
1: Affleck's very yes. very good. Yes, he yeah I the agree. The work is with on the you. page for me. For yeah, it it's uh, he got it was a great role mm. and uh he 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 delivered it very well. Uh, yeah. I agree. I, I think I'm also less likely to want to celebrate him.
0: No, there is also that. <laughs> yeah. There's this weird that this this weird place that we're in now where my impulse is to believe every word of those accusations because it
1: sounds it sounds very factual and believable yeah <laughs> it, it, the, the accounts just yeah i mean if you when i think about that i he made work environments uh very unsafe for women who he had hired yeah. to work with him it sounds he kind of professionally awful. undermined them in a really uh Terrible way, and then I think I look at something like Manchester by the Sea, and I know what L- Lonergan is like anecdotally mm-hmm. as a director. But I would imagine that he made that space very safe for Casey Affleck to give that kind of performance. And I almost, I don't want to, I don't want to celebrate the good work he did because someone else supported him when he has not. He has not provided that. For I, and I, the the fact is is that I believe is that if he treated those women in that way, can't imagine he treats other people well, he works with very well. Yeah, either. it just
0: doesn't speak <laughs> to a general personality. Yeah, kind, right. the 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 weird thing that I keep thinking about is having seen I'm still here, which is the film, the production where all of this supposedly happened. I can also see someone who isn't particularly mature deciding that you need to act this way in order to make the movie that he's making. But that's also bad. Like, that's not a defense. That's just equally stupid and ultimately just as misogynistic. There's no good answer to any of this, except that he does good work with other people, and so awards bodies are more likely to overlook Mm -hmm. the personal stuff. And, you know, just write it off as saying, well, it's still being litigated, we we don't have to talk about it. It's just, you you can't not. It's all part of it. And, yeah, what he does in Manchester by the Sea is very good, but... It's hard to separate that from this awful other thing he seems to have thought necessary to do as an artist. So, yeah, fortunately, we're mostly talking about Margaret. So it's, true, it's true, it's true.
1: Yes, yes. And uh, so so that that feels like a good moment to come back to the. Because speaking of of um, keeping sort of like the details of a, of a person's life separate from the work that they do creatively, yeah, yeah. you know. Um, Matthew Broderick I was going to say Matthew Broderick was a human being I think he probably Probably still is is. (laughs) i met him
0: he seems pretty young (laughs)
1: um but I can only imagine that experiencing something like that it was in his late 20s I think um you know and that's still a kind of young like formative time in one's life how has that 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 must color so much of his life I
0: can't imagine it ever goes away
1: How you know and if and then I look at something like Margaret or Manchester by the Sea or even you can count on me, all of which feature traumatic deaths. uh, um, Two of them vehicular. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, One of them we won't mention because it's in the more recent film. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, But then like his best friend who uh you know um had this incredibly traumatic event ha- not <laughs> didn't happen to him but it it w- it was something that he participated in um he has these deaths on his hands in a way okay. um he through, uh, like, this strange legal recourse, he paid a $175 fine and apologized to the family and is, you know, married to Sarah Jessica Parker and makes movies and most, a lot of people just kind of don't know about this. Yeah,
0: life simply um, goes on.
1: Yes, and so I look at something like Margaret, and one of the one of the final shots is of her and her mother you know seeing Mark Ruffalo drive by on the bus because after all that he's still kept his job um they've just bumped him to another route, and it does feel it is heartbreaking because you think you know oh he should have been at least at the very least fired you know um but I I sometimes feel like there is some that, like that, Broderick is some engine, some creative engine to Lonergan, and that by partic- by participating in these films, he's he has a kind of self awareness, or that maybe he's engaging in some creative penance. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Again, this is—I have no proof of this. I'm fascinated by it's... the
0: idea, though, that he's cast him in all three films always on the periphery. Like mm-hmm. He's never had to engage with... The characters he plays don't have to engage with the trauma at the heart
1: No, of any of no. the films.
0: Uh, and in, especially in, um, in Manchester, he's someone who is incredibly awkward and, and apparently, given that the character is a, is a either a born-again Christian or a very, very pious Christian, supposedly the most moral character in the orbit of the film because he also acts to protect his wife and does... He is doing everything correctly. But it's weird and off-putting.
1: Oh, there's a coldness yeah. and a kind of or a calculation. hyper-control.
0: Yeah, and so he is remarkably... For a film about ambiguity and and, and refusal to provide closure, Manchester gives you the most ambiguous <laughs> and strange character of all of them, the Ye- and That's true,
1: it. that's true. That It's funny, in that film, that, like, Gretchen Maul... <laughs> like, Gretchen Maul's still around? Yeah. <laughs> like, <it's, laughs>
0: I get why Lonergan would want to cast her. I also get why Lonergan would cast Michelle Williams in a role that seems to have nothing for her to do until she does. Mm-hmm, and she becomes mm-hmm. absolutely essential. The same thing happens in, in Margaret, where, you know, oh, Mark Riffle's just here because they're buddies and he made You Can Count On Me. It's like, oh, no, shit, there's stuff for him to do. It just takes forever to get there.
1: Yes, that scene outside the house. His yeah. face is doing so much. It's amazing. <laughs> and,
0: and this is what I mean about his casting since there are no small parts. He knows... He's going to need something from everybody when he works with them. And so his decisions to put Broderick where he puts him seem even more considered. And now that you've brought this theory up, it actually smacks a lot of stuff into place in in, in a way for me that I hadn't really considered.
1: I just, I don't know, like knowing that they have been, like Lonergan would have been, would have known Broderick while he was going through this. Yeah. It's as much in the same way that when you're, when you're very, when you're very close with some someone, uh, a tragedy strikes and you're there for it. It becomes, in some ways, part of your life too. Right. And in it's hard not to look at some of Lonergan's creative, the the his the creative questions he continues to ask as being, in some ways, connected to that to culpability, particularly related to. Um, Someone's literal life and death. Yeah,
0: no, it's it's really quite remarkable because they are all about, and, and Margaret is all about being party to a tragedy, um, and and you can count on me is about surviving one, and Manchester in a weird way is not is about not surviving it, but mm-hmm. there are like the three different or facets.
1: yeah or like surviving it physically. Yeah, but being <laughs> yeah. so defined by it that, yeah. that
0: it it ruins you, and every character in the, even the characters who. Um, you know, like, uh, uh, I can't remember, was it Lewis? Lucas Hedge's character? The, the yeah, kid, Patrick, Patrick. Patrick is enduring his own peripheral tragedy. Uh-huh. And he's just lost his father and he's reacting to it more or less the same way Lisa does in Margaret, which is just to sort of push forward and still be uniquely selfish as a teenager has to be, I guess, right? Yeah. There's no other way. But I love the fact that he thinks he's clever and the movie knows he isn't, that There are these little clues in Manchester. Every time he tries to have sex with his girlfriend and can't, he uses a math metaphor and the adults can see right through it. Um, What was, how's the calculus coming? It's very frustrating. (laughs) He's not as smart as he thinks he is. And I love movies that do that. Lisa has moments like that too. In in Yes, yes,
1: yes. She's, or rather she's like, she has more confidence and more personality and more like, more like, she's such a like she's such an appealing character like in one thing that they cut in 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 the longer version is her like after she bumps into matt damon um when he's on his bike and she's sort of flirting with him a bit and she's so awkward like she's just saying such like just like (laughs) like stuff that makes you cringe and then as he rides away she yells something like like i made you laugh like uh like I can die. Like she just m- makes some yeah. kind of hyperbolic statement. Like screams it on the streets of New York. Like New York. Like something that only, you know, a seventeen-year-old would have the and still be like, still know how adorable she is. Yeah. You know.
0: Yeah, it's remarkable. It's. Um, I think someone actually says it. I'm not sure in which version of the film, but somebody basically says you're you you're the star of your own movie or or that she's
1: that's Jeannie herself. Berlin. Yeah, in that, that in me. that scene where she's you know she's. She's talking about how as, you know, as Monica, played by Allison and Janney. And well, actually, yeah, like something that <laughs> Allison Janney's death scene for me is like probably one of my favorite death scenes in any movie ever, because yeah. <laughs> it's just you like you uh, <laughs> you spend like five minutes with this woman. And in that five minutes, she's just been hit by a bus and she's dying. And you somehow know exactly what she's like just from yeah, the way she died. you know
0: everything about her from her death. <laughs> yes.
1: <laughs> that later on when, like, when Jeannie Berlin is eulogizing her and says something like, you know, and as we all know, she's impossible, she was impossible to get along with. You're like, yes, I, I could see, see that. that. Yeah. Just in the way she somehow manages to piss off the man who's trying to, like, Make a tourniquet, you know. Yeah. He's like, "Ma'am, I'm trying to help you here." <laughs> like, <Yeah. The laughs> will... she's like screaming at him while she. <laughs> yeah,
0: Actually, now that I'm thinking about the the stretcher attendants in Manchester, like the well-meaning but inept. Oh, with uh, the medical world,
1: yeah, with the, the, the gurney, yeah. yes, that. No, it's I don't
0: uh, think has a lot of time for <laughs> he seems to know what to do himself. I, I suspect <laughs> if he got hit by a bus, he'd know exactly what to do.
1: I think so, too.
0: But the yeah, Janny's great, and and Jeannie Berlin, who apparently is only brought out by filmmakers when they absolutely need to remind you that Jeannie Berlin is one of the greatest <laughs> overlooked actors of her generation because <laughs> she's never bad, like, she's always fantastic. But no, I love her, she never turns up in anything.
1: No, and she's she's she and someone like Alice and Janney. I love like I love um I love character actors and I love trying to devote myself to female character actors because so often I feel like our even I should speak for myself I pay attention to the beautiful movie stars and yet then I remember that there are um these other kinds of actors um and I like to I like to take some time. To celebrate their their work.
0: <laughs> well, Berlin definitely deserves so. I mean, I don't know what Woody Allen did with what he thought he was doing with her in Cafe Society, but she's completely wasted.
1: Oh, I didn't see Cafe Society. Yeah,
0: best not. But, um, yeah, Berlin's fantastic in this. And again, she's brought out, she's sort of the film's truth teller, in mm-hmm. you know, a film that is filled with people who think they're truth tellers. She's the one who just cuts through the bullshit and just delivers that, that, that. Incredible. It's not even a condemnation; just this dismissal of the small, annoying person who's insinuated herself into her life. Mm-hmm. Who she's trying to be nice to, and then just decides she shouldn't be.
1: Well, it would it would be. I, I think about that, and I think about how horrible. If like if I were in Lisa's position, this woman who I admire, who I've who I've kind of like adopted as a as a sort of maternal figure, mm-hmm. um, or who's been very like accommodating and like you know when she told her that she lied, when she told her that Monica was in pain and knew she was dying, these incredibly painful things to tell this woman's best friend who wasn't present at her best friend's death. Yeah. And, like, the moment that she gets angry at her is uh, not when she tells her something painful, but when she tries to... um, yeah. When she tries to make a story, when she tries to romanticize her, her presence and say, Oh, I remember getting a chill. And when, she, when she's like, when Lisa's explaining, like, you know, um, Monica said, asked me to call her daughter who was named also named Lisa. And I was confused because that's my name. And I think, you know, in, in those last moments, maybe I was sort of, maybe I was sort of like, I was sort of that for her. Mm-hmm. And there's, and you just, while she's been saying this, like, Jeannie Berlin's just been standing there watching her, like, just, like, stone. Like, just so stony-faced. And then she's like, oh, so, um, like, did did Lisa, did Lisa Lisa's spirit, like, leave your body, like, after she died? Or, or is she still with you? Like, yeah. sh- the sarcasm is so, sca- <clears throat> so scathing. Like, and yet, like... <laughs> That, like, what Lisa does in that moment is so, it's so regular. Like, I've, I've probably did that, I probably did something like that. I so identify with that, mm-hmm. that desire to make something meaningful, to yeah. write yourself into the story. And to also,
0: I think, make it okay for the person who's listening to you to, to give them that kind of closure. Because, you know, I understand where she's coming from. She's trying to make it okay for this woman to have lost her best friend and say that the death was at least, you know, in some way peaceful. But she doesn't have the resources to really figure it out. So she, of course, she makes herself the hero. I mean, mm-hmm. inadvertently, I think. I don't think she's doing it out of narcissism. It's just how her 17-year-old head works. Yes, That's all she's
1: yeah. got. Yeah, it's, it, it is. It's, it's meant to be something like comfort. It's meant to be something like comfort to say um, that that your best friend maybe had the feeling of being with her daughter, her yeah. her daughter who died. Um and also, it makes me a kind of heroic figure because I got to be that person. Yeah. Um, so it's that it's it's both of those things, both of which uh, Emily, like Jeannie Berlin, is offended by yeah. because she at where she is in her life, she has no room for that that kind of myth making. You know, she's just. Um, and you don't know anything about her. Yeah. Like, it, there's a reference to her having children at one point. She, you know, she, like, I think it's, oh, man, the, he, he cuts his, his, some of his, um you know, he often lets scenes sort of trail off. Mm. But some of his, like, very quick cuts away always, like, end on a, on a really good comic note. Daniel and I love the one scene where, that, like, incredible scene where Matthew Broderick is arguing with the student.
0: Oh, the. About,
1: about Lear. Yeah. And, is, and he like angrily takes a bite out of a sandwich and a sip of juice and he opens the book and he just goes, poor Tom's a cold. And it just like cuts. <laughs> like <it's>... Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, Jeannie Berlin similarly uh, says, you know, like, I'm, I met Monica when I was 19, which I know my children would find hard to believe. And then I think it cuts away. But you know that she has children. You know that she must have. She lives in this apartment you know this nice apartment but you don't know anything about her life you know that she's she's friends with this young lawyer for some reason who she implies that she's known since he was a little boy but so much of her story is just completely omitted
0: i wonder if it's because i I always try to figure out i mean in a movie where uh lisa's told that she thinks she's the star of her own movie she actually is yes this, this is her movie more or less, except it's constantly distracted by everything else around her. I was trying to figure out if the if Lonergan doesn't show us more because Lisa doesn't perceive her as existing. I mean, so many of these characters only seem to really be present when Lisa is with them. Mm-hmm. We know nothing Which less Which is why it's than... kind
1: of interesting that they do show those scenes between um, Jay Smith, Cameron, Jean Reno. Like, they... Yeah, it gets away. There are some private... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Things that she's not privy... Things that Lisa's yes, not privy that, to. Exactly, that Lisa doesn't know.
0: But... So much of it is there for us. I mean, maybe it's because in that case, we're not supposed to fill in the blanks and wonder. We need to know. We need to see what her mother's going through um, so we can understand why Lisa's handling it so badly you know, in like a yeah. strange way. It's that, that other thing about growing up is when you realize, oh, if I'd known that, I would have acted differently. Hmm. And then realizing, no, I was 18, I was an idiot. I would still probably <laughs> have. Um, who was it? Oh, it was um, uh, Ryan Johnson said the reason he made Looper. Was because he was offered the opportunity. Like somebody said, you know, with time travel, would you? What would you do if you could go back in time and see yourself? And it's like, oh my god, I'd murder myself. I was, <laughs> I was such an asshole. <laughs> and this film is that kind of same echo. Yeah. It's an adult's film about adolescence and 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 maturity, and it has such a clear eye as to where Lisa is in her life. That that's the thing that I find so incredibly uncomfortable watching it is just knowing that she's hopefully if she's lucky she's going to grow up and realize just how awfully she's behaved but she's not a bad person
1: she's not a bad person if anything what you feel like what I feel I do feel like the film ends on well it's on it ends on a very cathartic note mm-hmm. with like the tales of Hoffman and them weeping at the, yeah. at the Met you know boy that must have been crazy to shoot <laughs> <But> <laughs> um you know, there's like this this beautiful like uh, you know opera, which is so which allows for so much feeling. Hmm. Um, there, I think people have said this that there's throughout Mar- Margaret, there's this there's this promise or or rather uh, possibility that art is something that can can help you like or not help you but is can sort of draw you forward or or help sort of organize feelings of grief or guilt or something um or bring people back together again this is all very this feels much blunter than i mean it to be but and mm-hmm. then and then it's interesting because then something like i look at i look at margaret and manchester by the sea as being like brother sister films i very actually much like, so, yeah. i think of the i think of I actually think of Manchester by the Sea as being his like Catholic guilt film, and Margaret as being his Jewish guilt film. Okay, <laughs> that's
0: interesting. Yeah, because the ultimately, yes, Mar- <laughs> Margaret is the like if you have to boil it down to a single uh, log line, it was just like, yeah, what are you going to do? I mean, it really is kind of a New York shrug. Yeah, yeah. Compared to the heavy Boston grief and and portent and
1: and and the incredible the the the, the I I, had like the overwhelming silence of Manchester by the Mm -hmm. sea is in, in, um, there are so many like, there are like all those very comic scenes between like the cousins and the lawyer and Emily and Lisa all just talking over each other in the conference call, like these, these effusive Jewish women (laughs) versus, versus like taciturn Catholic men. (laughs) like. Mm
0: true even before uh character in manchester dies he is just quiet about it <laughs> yes you know given this death sentence well like, that's how long okay. yeah
1: yeah and then gretchen mall like can't that's one of the reasons why she
0: that's right she doesn't even speak she's like,
1: she can't handle it she's like he's he's making a joke she like gets up and storms out yeah. you know
0: <laughs> and you get all the hostility between her and and the younger brother and like every like this whole history of 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 things not fitting in in that in that movie. Oh god, I don't want to watch that again right now. <laughs> that's Lunergan for you, though. Like he's so good at this. He builds worlds and then leaves us in them, mm-hmm. and then just rattles around for a little while. And sometimes there's a revelation that changes lives, and sometimes you just realize, nope, this is going to keep going. And he
1: that's doesn't how it care ends. about exposition, which is something that's nice. He he leaves it to you. Mm-hmm. He like. You meet people and you don't know what their relationships are to each other. Yeah. So you're you're like, is is Gretchen Maul someone's sister? And then you're like, oh, no, no, she's the wife. She's the wife. So you figure these right. things out but later. She's the at... wife. Why is she leaving the room? She's <laughs> like... finding out about the like, <laughs>
0: conflicting <laughs> desires. And yeah. It just, yeah. It's funny. And you know, he does. He, he avoids to an almost, well, I was going to say an almost frustrating point, but it's not frustrating, is it? He just knows when things need to land and he lets you yes. figure your way yeah. to them. Uh, the the phrase you can count on me is never spoken in you can count on me no but it comes no, with no. that amazing scene where Ruffalo says what did I used to tell you when you yeah. we were kids and you just you know you start crying <laughs>
1: yeah. I know what
0: that is yeah it, it's in the, it was it was on it was in words at the yes, beginning I know
1: sometimes.
0: but it's just he's so good at that and and I'm I'm angry at him for only making three movies in fifteen years because mm. I want more
1: well you I'm, could go watch you know analyze this if you want to get more... <laughs> no, of course. Yeah. That's I mean. He, he does say that
0: the greatest thing in that New York Times piece, the the one from 2011, he does say that, um, you know, like he wrote that to get paid. Yes. And it went through 14 other writers after he let go of it, and so he doesn't consider it his own anymore. But I do want to watch it again now and see if I can find any connections, like what what two or three lines of dialogue survive. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, even just the the idea of it, you know, is which. I don't know if it was. I I never read that New York Times magazine mm-hmm. piece, but I know from from the New Yorker piece that that you know um, his fam like his family, his mother and his stepfather were psychiatrists, and so that that idea of like a, a mob boss seeking right. treatment two and, years
0: before the Sopranos too.
1: Yes, <laughs> was, was it. yes, um, played for comedy. You know, I can imagine that if had had Lonergan. Sort of made his own film version of that. It would have been a lot. It would have had a very different tone. I'm sure. Yeah. Cast. I don't know who who would have who would have been Kenneth Lonergan's um, direction really? of of, of analyze you, this. Which roles would you
0: well? I mean, obviously, uh, do we do it in period? Do we figure out for 1996 or seven who you would have picked? Because that's interesting too. Do you
1: do you think do you think Broderick could have been the Billy Crystal characters? Sure.
0: I mean, why not? Um,
1: Matthew Broderick as reason? Billy Crystal not I mean, <laughs> in Analyze so just
0: Produc- <laughs> producer era Matthew Broderick could have done it sure
1: <laughs> okay and then who would, who you would you have been De Niro, De Niro. Um,
0: well Billy Crystal obviously
1: you, you <laughs> just bump take- it yeah this
0: <laughs> uh, in mid 90s Kevin Spacey maybe right after seven he had the edge he also we knew I, he funny. I,
1: want to t- I want to take from Lonergan's I want to take from oh, his from, the existing... from his ensemble that he likes to work with
0: mm. Ruffalo would have been too young although he could have done it he could do
1: anything basically <laughs> it's true I believe in Ruffalo in that way as well yeah he's
0: um is there anyone who's even old enough who has the appropriate age range for this
1: that's true I guess like he doesn't have a lot of older male characters
0: like renault's probably the oldest person (laughs) of the three films
1: and probably in during analyze this he would have been a bit um he would
0: have just come off the professional he
1: was yeah you're right those were very
0: form renault was
1: was that like 98 99 or like mid 90s 94 90 oh 94 okay yeah uh
0: analyze this is probably i'm thinking
1: 96 97 peak renault peak renault (laughs) Uh, It's a thing. (laughs) I think so. I think so. I thought he gave a very, like, understated comic performance in Margaret.
0: Oh, no, he's great. He's exactly... I mean, he's... The casting is exactly what it needs to be because he's this put-together European gentleman, but he has these really kind, sad, soggy eyes. Mm -hmm. So even when he's being kind of, you know jersey and his diagnosis of things, you see that there's something in there.
1: Yes, yes, that that behind his simplicity, there's a, there's like a, a warmth that she can't even, she can't even really like, she doesn't understand. Yeah. Because for her, everything is can the for now. I'm forgetting Joan. Joan is is uh, J Smith Cameron's name. Everything's so conditional.
0: Right.
1: Or. You know, and this is thinking, I, I think about how like so much of who she is is defined by her profession as an actor and um, like her identity, her personality relies very much on the cues that people give her. And so she just can't, she can't seem to quite read his cues. So she, she, in all of their scenes together, she, she seems sort of half formed. She's always like kind of staring at him with these wide open eyes, yeah. being like, oh, I wish I knew more. She says that a few times. Yeah, she's like,
0: helping for just further data. Yeah. How to respond. Not she doesn't what know about, about his but, country.
1: She doesn't know about opera in the way he's talking about it. So anyway, yeah. yeah.
0: Again, everybody has more Every there's there is more to see and more to be revealed about yes. every one of these characters,
1: and it's beautiful because you do have a lot of. I find I find I have such curiosity about all of them, which is a great gift I think, as a storyteller, if you can make all of your characters that interesting.
0: Yeah, yeah, you lean into these movies in a way that, or I do anyway, in a way that I don't yeah. for a lot of other people's. I just find them so rich with unspoken uh, detail. There's there's all this... They're lived in. There's stuff going on everywhere. Mm-hmm. And so that brings us around, really, to the final question of the podcast, which mm. is always the same, which is is there anything that you've lifted or borrowed or stolen or incorporated into your own <laughs> creative DNA? You've been on stage, you've been in cinema. Have you ever lonerganed? Have you ever gone for that?
1: Well, I guess I did already sort of... I, I jumped... I, I jumped on this, but, like, I find that um I guess if I can think of like one thing that I've I'm sure I've unconsciously lifted a ton because I've just spent like so many years of my adult life being really really like devoted to Understanding why Lonergan's work is so good to me, mm. and and wanting and wanting to emulate his ability as a as a storyteller, and and just his m- kind of moral, or maybe not moral universe, but sort of sort of like philosophical universe, um, which is so interesting and 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 um, rich. But I was doing a I was doing a play. Um, a few months ago, and I think it's okay if I say this because the play's over and it's never gonna happen again. Well, I don't think it will. But in the play, the character I was playing, um, is sort of is uh, I'm bitten by my husband, and the implication is that he cannibalizes me. Okay. This is I boy, I didn't contextualize this at all. <laughs> let him wonder. <laughs> it's it was I guess just just to provide a little bit of context. it, it was sort of it was not an uh, an overly realistic play. it was it was it was um set. Uh, we were settlers coming to Canada. This, sort of like um somewhat somewhat expressionistic uh, um, slash comic exploration of uh, colonialism okay. and um and also, uh, also gender politics there we go there it is <laughs> someone I should never ever write the press release for this play <laughs> um, but yes so in the final scene um, the character who plays my husband who is sort of um, uh, we have a we don't have a loving relationship I'm I'm very cruel to him he, he bites me and I'm bleeding out and um <laughs> there the way we had worked it out in uh in rehearsals is like I I am sort of bleeding and I kind of come over to him and we we say a few things to each other and then I die or possibly just pass out. I die, I think. Okay. Um, <laughs> but I think at one point and I'd been in one rehearsal I I'd, I'd sort of been like, "Oh, it's so sad. I just I just got murdered. <laughs> like, <that> was, <laughs> I I was feeling the. I think I think the say natural choice I made was to play a sort of like life is draining out of me,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and then I just I was looking at the guy who plays my husband, who is a really wonderful comedian and actor named John Blair. Okay, yeah, who's that? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, who I really, I just, I really, um, I found he gave me a lot of very interesting behavioral cues. But I just felt real pissed off at him. (laughs) And I I remember this was now in performance, I think one of our second or third performances, but instead of kind of like, kind of like um, sort of gently crawling over to him, like, oh, my last, these are my last breaths, I'm coming... I like clawed my way over to him and, he, and I saw his face change. He was like scared. <laughs> and then we talked about it afterwards. And he was like, he was like, you looked like you were coming over there to like, <laughs> like, like to really, really give it to me. And I was like, I was like, you fucking, ki- Oh, sorry. I swore. No, sorry. <laughs> I was like, you can swear. <laughs> I was like, I was like, you just killed me. Like, I'm very angry at you still. <laughs> and I just, and I remember thinking to myself, Alice and Janney gets hit by a bus. She gets like, she gets like brutally hit by a bus, dragged under a bus. She, that she knew her character so well yeah. that even though we never got to see what that character was like in life, I was like, this is amazing. Even in death, she's, she's, She's a like a battle axe.
0: Like, yeah.
1: Why give that up just because you're dying? And um and it became something I really looked forward to being just playing my death in a really enraged manner. Yeah. That yeah, makes perfect sense.
0: <laughs> Gave you permission.
1: Yeah, I guess just like, you know, I don't know what it's like to die. Um, but somehow the cliche that I naturally went to is that when you die you're there's sort of like a a lessening of the self and a maybe a gentleness or something right, the as you succumb yeah suffering the the that but i like the character I played throughout the the entire entirety of of this this production had been like really brutal and cold and cruel. why would she stop when she probably has like the last like kind of spike of adrenaline she's like probably gonna try and like put his eyes out or something like but maybe she got like she lost a little too much blood before she got there (laughs) so yeah it did it I think you know um probably that moment and like various other um you know and I again that's one of those things where you don't know if that's the writing or if that's Alice and Janney Mm um but I think sort of throughout Margaret and Lonergan's work at large, but especially Margaret, people just don't quite behave the way you expect them to, and it kind of reminds you that reality is very confusing.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's something we should carry with us, I think, because everybody's looking for resolution in, in their daily life to everything, and sometimes it just doesn't happen. I'm I'm tempted to just let this episode drift away, (laughs) have a close. but, uh, But yeah, yeah, it's just his films feel more like real reality. His films feel more like life, unfocused and still focused at the same time. There's a perspective, but it's not exclusive. I guess, if that makes sense. There's always room for something else to happen and, and other stuff yeah, to be going on.
1: Yeah, and it feels kind of like he sometimes makes the choice to sort of leave. He's like, Here, here's, a, here's a moment when I could leave while they're crying. There. Like, it's, yeah. you know that their lives continue and, that the, and like there absolutely could have been another scene after that and another scene after that. He could have just kept... Like, his films are very modular, Mm-hmm. Like, <laughs> yeah. they they don't, Um, they have these, like, small kind of peaks and dips, but they maybe uh, structurally, yeah, he does, he does like to let things meander a bit and end, he often ends on, like, a real mid-note. Like, Manchester, you can count on me, I feel like, had a, had a sort of, I mean, that almost... That that film is so much more contained than yeah. the other two.
0: It's the, the one of the three that feels like it could have been a play.
1: Yes. It, it, yeah. It feels
0: like a very stage ending where that's exactly when the lights drop. Mm-hmm. That's how it ends. Mm-hmm. And it works. It works on film. Yeah. Um, but the other two are very much not. Like they're just they could only be movies. They're cinematic narratives. They play with time, they play yeah. with space. They you, I I mean I'm sure you could you can stage anything but they feel like Margaret would need to be staged like in a warehouse the size of the one that Philip Seymour Hoffman
1: yes. is <laughs> in, yeah. in New York. Just,
0: it is the whole of the city in that module.
1: Yeah, yeah. I'm running
0: through it like a like a bus that's out of control. Bad example.
1: I do love, though, that I do love that Margaret ends in, you know, with an opera house, a theater, yeah. you know? Well, you were saying
0: earlier, when you were talking about about the music, being the clearest, I think that's. I think that art is the truth teller in this movie. Um, even when they're fighting over King Lear, they're telling, <laughs> and in that theatrical exercise, that little trust game they play, they're being their real selves. Only in moments where performance is in play, or where art is in, is in the space with them, and so when the opera scene happens, it feels. I mean, it's cathartic because it's supposed to be, because that's where we are, but. I think we are taken as we are as surprised by the emotional swells as Lisa and her mother are. They just no one is expecting that to go to play the way it does, and it's so powerful. Yes. uh, Because you're just being shaken by her response, by Lisa's response.
1: Oh, it's yeah, it's and it's it's uh, that scene, that final scene is is so it's it has it's complicated in a way that like. You could, you'd be like, because like I don't know if you remember this. I'm sure you do, but like the two operas, it's like Renee Fleming and another opera singer who I didn't recognize, but Hmm. they're two women, one of whom is in drag, and so they're playing a a romantic scene. So that's, I mean, that's interesting that it's it's obviously two women singing to each other, but one of them is in the role of a male, and then Lisa, like it's. Obviously, it's not the story that's being told, but rather just the f- the feeling of that music, which is so ha- has uh, such a sort of swelling emotional yeah. quality it's to like it. It's
0: like a yearning almost for connection, that's sort of yeah wailing to each other,
1: and that sort of causes her to break. And then what's interesting is that her mother actually responds to her, not to the opera. Yeah,
0: she's been quite <laughs> stoically.
1: Yeah, she's she's watching it. You know, she's probably enjoying it. But they even have that earlier scene when she's watching with Jean Renault and she goes, this is beautiful, and he shushes her. Yeah. <laughs> but you get the sense that, you know, maybe she would just would have been like, this is beautiful. But it's actually seeing her daughter, like, m- moved sort of moves her
0: yeah yeah. (laughs) she doesn't even know what it is i mean we do because we've been with lisa the whole time it's again it's this sort of the proximity thing where we've been closer to this character than her own mother has and we know why she's breaking down and her mother almost does but doesn't quite because she's not connecting to the opera the same way so it's almost tragic except that then they're then they do connect and yes and she
1: lets her she lets her connect yeah she like reciprocates but there's this like funny kind of daisy chain of, of yeah, people yeah, yeah. watching people watching people yeah <laughs> and all
0: of it is like again it's the, the mission statement of the film right that everything is part of the same thing yeah and if we don't want it to be or even if we don't understand how it could be it's yeah and then oh, just
1: those included shots of like other other people in the audience just their faces watching it's yeah. very it's very i've always i always find it interesting when filmmakers are like here's a shot of the audience because the, an audience member's face doesn't really tell you that much. But I think what it in like all of his like city shots, his city, city shots, building shots, what those faces do remind you is that they are not alone. There are like hundreds of other people here who are also having like a deeply private experience. Yeah. Oh, as the, well. in
0: the elevator, the elevator moment with, with Smith Cameron when she breaks down and, has to compose herself because someone else oh, wanders yeah. in. Oh yeah.
1: Yes. Oh my gosh. Yes, that's not that's back. not in the short version. Oh really? Right. Yeah. It's
0: fun. it's not?
1: No. Oh, Jesus.
0: I remember it being in there. That's weird. I've inserted it uh retroactively because it should be Yes, yeah, so and she
1: oh like it's uh, essential. Jay Smith Cameron has I find her so adorable. Like she's <laughs> um cuz she's a grown woman, but there's something about her that kind of makes me think that she there's just something about her that like reminds me of probably uh, like what she was like as like a child, mm. even like, oh, like a scene that I love that's totally there just for fun is her doing her impressions of like Shirley Temple in a baby. Yeah. And I, I honestly feel like, I mean, that's just, that's, that feels like just a scene of some like levity and. You know, actors hanging out after a show, but that to me so feels so much like Kenneth Lonergan just like being in love with his wife and like knowing that she has this odd little skill and creating space for her, you know, to do it because you and you do see her daughter totally in love with her in that moment, <laughs> as as I feel too when I watch that scene as well because. She's just so brilliant in that tiny way.
0: Yeah, and he's hung on to this and found a place for it.
1: Yes, he yeah, to show us. And then to like that elevator scene, she's so good at at just kind of um dissolving in in really, really like deep sadness. And then also just kind of like going uh, like arcing, <laughs> arcing through when someone comes in and like just kind of <laughs> after like 12 seconds having like that sort of like serene smile on her face yeah. again she's she's uh she's a really she's a really special actor i'm glad i i i uh i'm glad she's on rectify which which is uh a show that yeah just I wrapping know. up
0: now isn't it the last yes
1: season? i'm uh oh is this the last season i think it's
0: i think it's actually just finished <sighs>
1: I didn't know they weren't renewing it.
0: Oh, yeah, but it's a conclusion. I think that's
1: okay, a this few. Okay, I'm a few episodes yeah, behind. This is
0: the fourth season, I think, and yeah. they brought it, they, Ugh, they are in the I, end. Love I'm
1: sorry. I love it. I love it. I think much.
0: Spencer's off on Timeless, so the, the bell was ringing.
1: <laughs> but she's she's wonderful in it. That's um, great. And well, it's just nice to be able to see an actor like her get you, to see her do so much.
0: Yeah. Well, this is a good recommendation. If you guys listening have not seen Rectified, definitely dive in. It is a weird, slow, lumpy, unpredictable kind of show. Like, it is not television in the, in the conventional no, sense of the term. No, it's
1: funny. You say slow, I say meditative. Oh, I like it. <laughs> okay. Uh, so,
0: you know, it, it does line up. It is up, odd. You know, yeah, yeah. It lines up in a weird way with Lonergan's work in that it refuses to be anything but itself mm-hmm. and is satisfying, mm-hmm. but you kind of have to surrender to it.
1: Mm-hmm. I would, yeah. And it's it's like if, Kenneth Lonergan maybe were to make like an Americ like a Southern Gothic. Yeah. Like, <laughs> and
0: everybody in it is great. And now they're all doing other stuff too. So you just start to true, see them pop true. up here and there and go, oh, yeah. cool, that
1: person. And um, it's also, again, you know, something we didn't talk about with Lonergan. But I mean, Rectify is, is a very interesting show about um, faith, about, say, Christian faith, but just any sort of spiritual faith. it It, it sort of traverses that... That um, world very generously and and philosophically. and I would say that uh, I would say that in Lonergan's films as well, there's a kind of like it's sort of like humans um, trying to find faith in things when God is probably absent yeah. <laughs> yeah. there's there's a there's a real spiritualism in all of them, I think, if not if not like clear religious inquiry.
0: Yeah. I just I want to believe that all of these people are going to find their way out, find their way back to something, you know, out of the out of the clouds that they're under, or out of the the misery that they're in. <sighs> yeah.
1: Yeah. And part of that I think, I mean, Margaret ends on this note of of them being out in the world, being surrounded by other people, being with each other, sort of um not not imprisoning themselves in solitude which right. is in Manchester by the Sea you get the feeling that he makes a kind of soft compromise like he doesn't yeah. stay but he also doesn't quite leave he, he creates space for his nephew to be with him
0: yeah those you know. final shots where it's ambiguous as to how much time has passed as well
1: yes yeah, gives
0: you a sense that maybe not peace but at least solace something is something yeah. is moving forward he's,
1: he's kind of He softened a little bit, even just in allowing the boat to have a second life. Yeah. Because you get the sense that had he not been pushed, had he not, uh, had his brother not committed this strangely merciful act within his will, you know, that he would have just stayed in that little apartment in Boston and kept having these... Um, sort of menial jobs, um, and probably would have become more and more alienated from everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, but through through a, like through a lot of people kind of pulling him back and and like even just a little bit of consent on his part, he it does sort of end on a more hopeful note.
0: Yeah, it's weird. The more I think about it now, I'm thinking that all three films are about people who have support systems that they don't understand.
1: <laughs> that they, that's that very true they and they also kind of don't want yeah. also or like they they resist a little bit
0: oh plenty resistant. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. in Manchester I think that's the thing that's sharpening as the film yes. as, yeah. as his career goes on
1: oh I also think I mean again this is me being but uh, I also feel like with Manchester it's so much about so much about like masculinity and sort of I mean again this is all very um, speculative on my part but those those men not feeling permitted to accept help from each other right or even say admit that they uh, are in pain like they can express suffering through like getting into fist fights or something right. but but like that yeah anyway but that's 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 just my that's, that's an opinion it's a pretty valid one <laughs> yeah.
0: My thanks to Naomi Squarna, who you can see in Dim fluorescence if you're in Park City tonight, Tuesday, January 24th at the Slamdance Film Festival. And if you're not there, keep your eye out for it on the Film Festival circuit, because it's really something. And thanks to Ingrid Hamilton. She knows what she did. You can find Naomi on Twitter at A Woman Squarned, all one word, spelled like it sounds. And you can find Margaret on Blu-ray and DVD from 20th Century Fox Home Entertainment. It's also available on iTunes and Google Play, though I should point out that iTunes has the theatrical cut, while Google Play has the extended version. If you've only seen one of those, see the other one. It's really worth it. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner and elsewhere on the internet at nowtoronto.com. You can also find this podcast on Twitter at Semcast, mcast and on the web at someoneelsesmovie.com. If you want to leave a review up on iTunes, that would be very kind of you. Thanks for listening.
1: I'm Laura Palmer, host of Island Crime. Season 6, Sweethearts, is the story of three teenage girls who were all murdered in Victoria, Canada within about 12 months.
0: So she was scared. Something out there scared her. You just created the playground where predators can really thrive. She
1: was a 16-year-old girl. She was a sweetheart. Listen to Sweethearts at FrequencyPodcastNetwork.com or wherever you get podcasts.
0: Find your frequency.